Welcome to Thomson Reuters Down the Hall with Practical Law, the show that provides practical insights and expert know-how on trending legal issues. No legalese, just expertise. And here's your host. Hello, and welcome to Thomson Reuters Down the Hall with Practical Law. I'm your host, Haley Arendelle, and today we're going to talk about senior and vulnerable investors, what you need to know about the law and diminished capacity. Joining us today is Kelly Brannon. Kelly is a senior legal editor with the Practical Law Capital Markets and Corporate Governance Service. Prior to joining Practical Law, Kelly was a partner in the private practice and also served as the general counsel to a broker-dealer. Kelly hosted a webinar with Thomas Mursa, an executive director in Morgan Stanley's Legal and Compliance Division, Dr. Maurice Preter, who specializes in psychiatry, neuropsychiatry, and neurology, as well as Richard Such, a partner with Bressler, Emery, and Ross, to cover this topic. Today, Kelly is going to share some of the key highlights from this webinar with us. Welcome, Kelly. Thanks, Haley. It's great to be here. Happy to have you. According to a 2016 report from the AARP Policy Institute, one in five older Americans are victims of financial fraud, losing over $3 billion annually, though this number is understated given that most losses are not reported. There are over almost 74 million baby boomers living in the United States, and this new legislation has the potential to help a lot of seniors from financial abuse. Besides this growing number of seniors in the U.S., why do you think these rules were put into place now? Well, I think the rules were put into place because it's not just the number of seniors, this 74 million baby boomers that you're referring to. The studies have shown that it's 75% of the nation's assets. That's trillions of dollars, about $16 trillion, all resides in a household that's headed by someone who's 50 years or older. And that number is only expected to grow. They anticipate that by, I think it's 2020, the number of households headed by someone who's 65 and older will double from the year 2000. That's a really big number with a lot of assets concentrated in one group of people. They found that fraud has been increasing lately. And not only fraud, but they found that financial institutions don't have the ability to deal with individuals who are coming in who are suffering from diminished capacity. Previously, financial institutions really had their hands tied and couldn't do anything because of the privacy laws. And the laws and regulations that have been put into place empower financial firms to take action if they believe that financial exploitation or diminished capacity is occurring with a senior citizen, or for that matter, anyone who is 18 and older and has a mental or physical disability that prevents them from making their own decisions. Interesting. So can you outline what this new legal framework does to help seniors and these vulnerable investors? Sure. There are really three aspects of it. There is a federal law, and the federal law is really designed to give immunity to firms who put certain safeguards in place and take action to report if they suspect conduct that might be financial exploitation, might be diminished capacity, and any citizen who is 65 years or older. The state laws are slightly different. The state laws are really designed not only to give immunity, but to encourage or in some cases require reporting if they suspect any conduct. The rules for regulatory institutions, and I'm focusing on FINRA here for broker-dealers, those new regulations 
allow a broker-dealer to place a hold on the distribution of funds. So if a senior citizen comes in and they suspect financial exploitation, or they suspect that the senior citizen, they're not really aware of the consequences of their actions because of a diminished capacity, they can actually do something and they can temporarily hold those funds that they want distributed out before something really bad happens. Got it. So you kind of mentioned who at least in theory, is kind of covered under these various laws. But does that change depending on the legal rubric that you might be considering? It does. The laws, the federal laws, are only designed to protect senior citizens. So the protected class is anyone who's 65 years and older. The state laws, it's all over the map. It's In some states, it's 60. Some states, it's 55. Some states, it's 65. So you'll want to go and look at your state law to determine what actually, what the age requirement is there. A lot of states' laws also do what FINRA does, which is they have a protected class for anyone who's 18 and older who's suffering from some sort of a disability that makes them incapable of making their own financial decisions. And FINRA is for 65 and older and protects 18 and older if there's some sort of disability. So maybe as a kind of a quick question for you, has there been any backlash from seniors who say, well, I'm perfectly capable of answering my own or making my own financial decisions just because I've turned 60 or 65? Am I being targeted in a different way that's maybe not to their liking? It's interesting that you asked that question because we had this webinar and there were questions that came in from some of the participants. And there was one participant who asked a series of questions and seemed to be fairly upset that this had been put into place and at the idea that someone who was 65 and older didn't necessarily need the protection or the help. And that may be true for a lot of people out there, but the studies show something slightly different. The SEC, FINRA, and there were some interagency reports as well. They've all said in their reports that their studies have shown an increased risk of both financial exploitation and diminished capacity at 65 and older. Interesting. What does this new law require or new laws require that financial services professionals to do now that they did not have a duty to do before? It varies by the law or the regulation, but generally the requirements are going to include a few components. The first, and it's a big requirement for both the federal law and the federal regulatory rules, not as much a part of the state, but training. Training is a huge component if you want immunity and if you want to be compliant with the regulatory rules. Investigations, proper investigation, if there's suspected conduct, is another large component. Reporting in some states, it's voluntary. In some states, it is mandatory if you suspect financial exploitation and documentation. It's going to be very important for you to document the training that you had, the procedures that you had in place, and to document the investigation that took place as well. And what exactly constitutes financial exploitation? Again, that also varies by statute, but what you're really going to find, you're going to hear words that you hear really for any exploitation. You're going to hear wrongful or unauthorized taking. You're going to hear exploitation described as a conversion or a misappropriation, sometimes simply just withholding, even if you haven't spent the money, or any other attempt to obtain control through deception, intimidation, or undue influence. So what are some signs of diminished capacity that professionals should look out for? 
In the webinar, Dr. Prater does an excellent job of detailing what diminished capacity really is and how to identify it. And for anyone who's out there listening and they really want a short synopsis with some pretty dense information, this webinar is a terrific resource. That said, it really comes down to using common sense and knowing your client and knowing whether or not something has changed with your client. So you're going to look for any changes in appearance. If someone was a fastidious dresser and they come in and their clothes are disheveled and their hair's not brushed and they look like they haven't washed for a couple of days, that should let you know that there might be something that you need to look into a little bit further. If they're not able to perform sort of simple math functions, just doing simple math problems, if they're having a difficult time balancing their checkbook or understanding what's in their account and being able to process a buy and a sell and what that means and how much they're making, all of those are signs that there could be diminished capacity. And one note that the doctor makes is that sometimes it's temporary and it could be something as simple as a medication. And sometimes it's something much more permanent like dementia. But Diminished capacity should be investigated fully if it's identified because you really don't know if it's just a temporary issue or if it's something permanent and your clients lost the ability to completely make decisions on their own. So it sounds like it's really important to have a baseline to even be able to make that comparison or that judgment call if you are that broker-dealer. That's correct. So what about investors with online accounts? I imagine it's really easy to get a hold of someone's login credentials and then issuing distributions or or executing trades without their permission. What is the duty there for financial institutions to make sure that their clients are safe? That's a great question, Haley. And I think a lot of the financial institutions already have measures in place to address those concerns. I'm sure you've tried to pay a bill online before and You received a message saying, we noticed that you're using a different computer. We're going to send you a code to your mobile phone, and we want you to enter that code into the online system. And those systems are in place for AML reasons and for just general fraud and protection reasons. And I think most financial institutions already have that buckled down. But that doesn't take away the obligation of a financial firm, whether it's through an online account or whether it's through a personal relationship through a branch, it doesn't take away the requirement that you have to know your customer and you have to check in with them every so often and make sure that you're aware of that being the correct person and them being knowledgeable of the transactions that are occurring in their account. Got it. So what if someone is technically authorized to act on behalf of a senior or vulnerable investor, but a financial advisor suspects some kind of, you know, fraud or just simply that their client's interests aren't being taken into account with some of the transactions that they're beginning to see on the account? Well, you have a lot of options depending on where you are. And again, I'm limiting this to broker-dealers because that's what the webinar discussed. But if you believe that someone who has, for example, power of attorney is misusing the power of attorney and that the client themselves, they don't know what's going on, then it's really important that you have those written procedures that are now required by FINRA, that you have those written procedures and that someone can escalate that issue to either a designated 
person or a designated committee and let the committee investigate and reach out to a trusted contact person if one's been identified, and that's not the wrongdoer, of course. Reach out to a trusted contact person, and if necessary or if required, report the conduct to the appropriate authorities. So if you had to kind of summarize, what are just some key best practices that financial dealers or broker-dealers should be taking into consideration as these new laws become more and more ingrained or expected of their clients? There are copious amounts Mm -hmm. of studies and documents and reports on this very subject by the regulators. We do go into detail in the webinar. For the purposes of this podcast, I would say, generally speaking, the best practices involve certain buckets that you need to make sure are in place. You need to make sure that you have automated your supervisory system to pick up some of the normal triggers for financial exploitation, large cash requests that are unusual for the account, multiple small requests that are unusual for the account. You need to make sure that you've designated a person or a committee, and that is very, very important to deal with those issues internally. And you have to have robust written procedures and guidance that address the detection, escalation of those issues, and any reporting that needs to happen. It's really vital that the people on the front line, generally the sales force, meet with or have a telephone conversation with their clients annually because it all comes down to the know your customer. If you know that customer and you know what they're trying to accomplish with their investments, you're going to notice if there's something that's out of line with their customary behavior. Great. Kelly, this has been really helpful. Where should our listeners go if they'd like to learn more about this topic? They should go to the show notes for this podcast, and there should be a link to the webinar in those notes. Are there any resources that our Practical Law subscribers can review online? Absolutely, there are. There are at least three Practical Law resources. One is a practice note for preventing and reporting financial exploitation of specified adults. Another is a checklist of the task and key regulatory guidance relating to senior investors and vulnerable adults. And then there is a toolkit for FINRA regulation and supervision. Perfect. So I think that brings us to the close of our show. Kelly, thanks again for joining us. I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. And if you've liked what you've heard, please feel free to rate us an Apple podcast. Until next time, I'm Haley Arundel, and this has been another edition of Thomson Reuters Down the Hall with Practical Law. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find both Thomson Reuters Practical Law and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Thomson Reuters, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.